0: This is Steve Smith from WCG Patient Radio. WCG is a company focused on the ethical treatment of the people who volunteer for clinical trials and the safety and efficiency of those trials so more treatments for unmet medical needs can be developed. Some of our themes are about participation in trials, and today we shine a light on traditionally underrepresented populations and giving them access to participation so new and better medicines can be developed. We're speaking today with Dr. Charlotte Owens, MD, FACOG, a medical director at AbbVie Pharmaceuticals in the general medicine and virology therapeutic area with a focus on women's health, where she's involved in the direction, planning, execution, and the interpretation of clinical trials. She's a board-certified obstetrician and gynecologist and continues to practice obstetrics and gynecology as an adjunct clinical assistant professor of obstetrics and gynecology in Atlanta. Hello, Dr. Owens.
1: Good
0: morning. How are you? I'm good. Thank you for talking to us today. You not only continue to treat patients, you lead some of the clinical research activities at AbbVie focused on trying to find treatments or cures for serious life-threatening conditions impacting a substantial portion of the population. How was it that you got into medicine and what steered you to clinical research, women's diseases, and to develop specific thought leadership in bringing underserved populations into clinical research?
1: Well, I think like so many things in life, it goes back to my childhood. My parents really instilled a culture of service in me. And and what that meant to them was to really find a way to do something for others that was truly helpful. What I realized is that when people were sick, that it was a really an important time for them because you you fear whether or not you're going to recover, you don't know how you're going to get better necessarily, and the role of a physician becomes very paramount at that point in time. So my passion for trying to make people feel better was really born from seeing various people in my life become ill and seeing how physicians and nurses could actually help them get better. Research Came through my entire education piece because it was a requirement as an undergraduate student. It was also a requirement as a medical student and it was a requirement as a resident. So I started to develop what I didn't think of at that time as a skill set that I would use for the rest of my career. And when I started doing my rotations, I realized that women's health allowed me to do several things. One, the most important thing I felt I would do as an obstetrician gynecologist was to educate women and to help them bring healthy children into the world. But to be able to take care of a woman from the time she's a teenager all the way through to the end of her life was also very important and to be able to offer medical and surgical therapies. I didn't really plan necessarily to go into industry, but I started being a consultant to different companies while I was in clinical practice. And that's when the light bulb went off for me. There was a realization that a lot of really important impactful research that make a difference in our lives comes from industry. Industry is the place where you actually have the ability to bring a new product to market that helps you not only take care of people in your practice, but to also take care of people around the world. I can see personally 20 to 40 patients in a day, but by bringing new therapies to the marketplace, you can take care of people all over the world, even if they never see you.
0: You recently wrote an article in Clinical Leader, That eloquently makes a case for inclusion of minority populations in clinical trials, but also informs us clearly about what specifically can be done to increase the chances that minority populations will participate in trials. This can be a great help to both the patients and to those professionals who seek to collaborate with them in specific trials. I wonder if you can talk about how diversity in clinical trials can help not only those minority populations in question but in fact can help everyone?
1: One of the things that we strive to do in research is to address a illness, a disease that is affecting multiple people. And by the very nature, that means everyone who's affected. One of the things we know about minority participation is that it it's not because they shouldn't be involved, it's that they lack the access frequently. And by doing that, we miss out on valuable information that would truly help us inform every patient who seeks care at a physician's office. So by including minorities, we're just saying include everyone. Include everyone who's ultimately affected by the disease because the goal of a trial is to gather important information that not only informs the ability to bring a a product to market, but helps tells the physicians that administer the medications what to expect. And if you leave out an important group of people in the trials, then you really are missing important information later. And that's not what we strive to do in clinical research. In clinical research, we really strive to include everyone.
0: The the FDA themselves have uh, issued guidances too, um, going back some years, to say there really needs to be a wider inclusion in clinical trials more diversity, and this is quite discussed now um, across the stakeholders of the medical research. And by the very nature of the word itself, diversity can mean many things, including accounting not only for racial and ethnic minorities, but also people who don't live near major medical centers, so have difficulty participating in a trial, or cannot afford to travel or take time off from work. Uh, underrepresented populations also include women in general. That's well documented. Not only African American women, but and uh, children, um, older people, uh, people with rare diseases. There's quite a list of people who are not included uh, traditionally. And so there are efforts being made. And as you well laid out, um, <clears throat> you in your article you talk not only about the problem but <clears throat> the solutions. And a lot of people believe that. Um, this can help uh, good medical care, but can you talk a little bit more about the understanding of the specific population and how the, the team that works with them locally during the clinical trial uh, should also represent that population, and what, what can be done better if there's a real connection with a community?
1: So part of this gets to understanding who your patient population is. And you're so right. When we talk about diversity, we mean not only based on race, but we also mean age and gender. And that really gets to the whole crux of the issue. The way people perceive information and absorb information will be different based on all of those factors. So the team that you select has to simply understand that. The team that you select to work on your clinical trial has to be able to help you meet people where they are at. And what that means is, do you take into account what their day-to-day life is? Do you understand how they feel about it? Do you understand who's the unit, the community that supports them, that helps them make decisions, the community that they have to go home to at night? Or do they even go to a home at night? These are all important factors when you're designing a clinical trial and you're really trying to make sure people appropriately are participating because you need to have information that they understand, the right information at the right time in the right way. And you also have to make sure that you are taking that into consideration as they decide to participate in the study or not. And if they do decide to participate in the study, how can you make sure that you're meeting their needs? And that's really how the study team has to be constructed. There's a clinical trial protocol, but there's the Way that you implement it, and the team has to be able to make both of those parts fit by making sure you have appropriate communication, and you're very supportive, and put the patient at the center of all.
0: When you recruited and retained women for your uterine fibroid trials, you made a specific effort to make sure that women were traditionally who were traditionally underrepresented in these trials, not only participated, but were able to successfully stay active through the course of the studies and this effort resulted in a more meaningful representation and therefore more meaningful data to help the trial succeed from women affected by this condition and this is one of the most common benign pelvic tumors in women and present in up to 80 percent of african-american women and also 70 percent in caucasian women by the time they're 50. so how did you approach this this kind of detail of what they really need to participate, and how did that benefit um, through participation?
1: Well, one of the things that we do after every trial, and again, this was the Phase 3 trial, so in the trials before, we anonymously made sure that we collected information from prior participants to understand how was it to participate in our trial. We also, on a regular basis, Talk to the sites that participated in the past and continue to participate in the phase three study And we really listen to that we take that information to heart because we understand that we were asking women to participate For more than two years and it's really hard to interject a new thing in someone's life for two years So we walk through each and every study visit we took the feedback that we got from both prior study participants anonymously as well as the sites And we said, how does that help us make every single study visit as helpful to the patient by reducing their time, by reducing their burden, and increasing their understanding of the disease? And also, how does this help the site be able to participate in a way that is beneficial to the patient? So, does the patient, after they're fasting, for example, for a blood draw? they're hungry. So what kinds of things would we need to have at the site? Snacks, shakes, whatever was required in order to help people have some sort of nutrition afterwards. If they were taking transportation to the facility, was it a bus? What? How would that look like in wintertime? If the when we had hurricanes, which affected many of our sites. How were we going to have a backup plan to make sure that we could still continue taking care of the patients while they were in the study trial? All these are things that we thought about because we understood what patients needed, we understood what the sites felt was required, and we incorporated that throughout the whole study. Again, understanding this was a two-year participation, we really had to make sure that we thought about their lives. And that's what I mean by making sure we meet people where they are and thinking about all the practical things that could either disrupt or enable their participation in the study.
0: Did you offer transportation services to help patients get to their trial appointments?
1: Sure, so if a patient needed to have transportation specifically for the purposes of this clinical trial, we um, would offer to help get them there. Uh, Whether or not that was public transportation or what have you, we made sure that we were able to get them to the study sites. And and think about it. Some of the sites had to stay open earlier or stay open uh, later in the day to accommodate real life scenarios. So not only did we help assist with transportation, but we also tried to make sure that it was easier for patients to participate in the study.
0: And would I be right in guessing that some of these patients don't have the kind of work where they can simply take the day off to go to a trial and they'll still be paid, that if they lose the work, they lose the pay. And so those extra hours at the beginning and end of the day you're talking about can um, open the participation to more people
1: absolutely and sometimes being open on days when you might want to be you know be closed we had women who were truck drivers we had women who were probably school teachers etc and so as we saw some of these things coming back from the site saying hey this is the real life situation what can we do we brainstormed with them to create a scenario that was a win-win for both the patient and the site did you
0: use trial navigators or uh- anything that's um, that name may sometimes be applied to call-in centers or in some way to have the patients able to always talk to a human who about the trial who knows who they are and what's going on with them and knows what their um, their all their different issues are so that they aren't ever just left alone to figure things out
1: absolutely we had study coordinators and study coordinators were available around the clock um, there were also study team members, including myself, who were available 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days of the year. The study coordinators were also able to contact me via cell, email, text, however they needed to, in order to be able to reach me and alert me if something was necessary. The study coordinators, though, as you can imagine, though, being involved with these subjects for up to two um, years, these participants really needed to have someone that they could call and ask questions to. So there was an automatic rapport that was developed between these coordinators. And that's part of why you have to have people who are at least empathetic to the things that will come up. We also understood that people respond very quickly to text. So we had, we worked with an external vendor who created an app that would allow us to text patients in a compliant fashion to provide reminders that would help them stay on track and be able to know when they might need to contact the site. These patients to the site were not numbers, they were real people. And I think that was really important. We really worked very hard to help people understand that we want them to be engaged, we wanted them to be informed, and we wanted them to clearly understand each step of the way.
0: Were there, were there any kind of um, technology um, applications used or methods to help people stay at home or work or school, whatever their normal lives are, as they did uh, things uh, for the trial that traditionally would have required a visit to the clinic? Was there any way to reduce the number of clinic visits?
1: Yeah. So for... When there were visits that did not require something to be done physically in person, uh, we had what we call phone visits. And uh, the patients were able to stay at home and do certain procedures remotely. The site would be able to contact them to get the information that was required. Most importantly, though, that feature was available throughout the entire trial because sometimes things come up. And so making sure that patients had contact information and knew that they could not only contact the site but even contact. We have a hotline that patients are also made aware of that they can um, contact um, people if they have additional questions. So all of that was really important and each site had to maintain that sort of process.
0: There's a a lot of discussion in the industry about um, participation in clinical trials especially when there's a chance medications could be developed that um, would serve an unmet medical need, and the African American community that you have uh, worked with um, is often mentioned because of some of the diseases that are in high prevalence there, and then a, um, what a lot of people perceive as a tradition of not being able to be included in trials, even a, sometimes an unwillingness or a fear, um, and others say, you know, it's it's often misunderstood why these populations, um, whether it's African American or others, won't participate in trials. Can you um, shine some light on what are the real reasons um, why African-American populations may not have been participating in trials and in in a way that in in today's world could be addressed?
1: Well, you know, as as I stated in the article you referenced in Clinical Leader, I think it's multifactorial to some extent. There there might be some historical knowledge or, or lack of knowledge about what has been put in place since the 1940s. And and some of that really relates to, there was a time where trials didn't necessarily focus on the rights of patients and and had various levels of oversight, but certainly not near what we have today. But today, there are processes in place such as informed consent and institutional review boards that are there for the sole purpose of maintaining high ethical standards and research. And so some of it is not knowing that things are different, and some of it is probably just not having access. Not having access because of where the trials are located or not having access because of various different things that we don't think of. How often do you hear about a clinical trial um, on television or on radio? Sometimes you do, but not often. We made sure that we actually had information available in print, on television, and in radio, because we know that this is an important source of knowledge. So, our recruitment efforts really made sure that patients understood not only that it was an option, but exactly what their participation would require and why it was important. And we also made sure that when they came to the site to consider the participation, we invited them to bring their families and their loved ones, because we knew that that would help inform them, and that would create a supportive environment. Again, when you're looking at a study, you need to make sure you understand how that person is incorporated into their larger eco-environment, and that includes friends, families, and anyone else that's important. I think most importantly, we understood that the education and level of partnership is critical not only to the recruitment, but maintaining that participation throughout the course of the trial.
0: Yes, if a person goes home to fam- speak to family members who uh, aren't part of the whole pro- process, they, a family member could say something to um, make the person fearful or want to drop out. It, so it's helpful, to, it's wonderful that you incorporate the family in that manner. What about informed consent? How how um, did you do the informed consent?
1: Oh, absolutely, you know, you can't do a trial without it, but What we really make sure we do is you know, the the informed consent has to be in very easy uh, language so that people understand it. They also have to have time. And that means take it home, read it, show it to others in your family so that they can ask questions. And then you have an opportunity to engage as much as you have to, as much as you want to, in order to gain an understanding so that you know exactly what you're trying to participate in or you have the knowledge that it's okay if you don't.
0: Well, this has been wonderful talking with you. It's quite inspiring. Um, There's so much discussion about uh, the patient voice and listening to the patient voice, but where I think um, there's a lot of need is for uh, companies running clinical trials and the hospitals that run them to respond to the patient voice. And you have in most um, detail um, laid out today uh, and in your article about how you actually respond to that voice and the things that have been said, not just in your trial, but over many years by providing these kinds of detailed interactions with the community. So um, thank you for speaking with us today about that. I hope that it inspires others who are designing and running clinical trials.
1: Thank you for the opportunity to speak
0: with you. So thank you very much, ladies and gentlemen, for tuning in. Today we have spoken with Dr. Charlotte Owens, MD, from Appy Pharmaceuticals, uh, who is um, in general medicine and virology therapeutic area with a focus on women's health. Uh, She is an adjunct clinical assistant professor of obstetrics and gynecology in Atlanta. Thank you very much, uh, Dr. Owens, and thank you, everybody, for listening. Goodbye.